You're fed up with a 9 to 5. You've been working hard for years and you're just not seeing the results you want. You want to break free from a traditional career but don't know how? Business Breaks is here to help. Subscribe now and rate and review on your favourite podcast platform. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of the Business Breaks podcast, where we delve into the fascinating world of manufacturing and reshoring with a distinguished guest, Harry Moser, a trailblazer in American manufacturing. And as the former North American president and chairman emeritus of GF Machining Solutions and the founder of the Reshoring Initiative. Harry has dedicated his career to bringing manufacturing jobs back to the US. His remarkable efforts have earned him a place in the Industry Week Manufacturing Hall of Fame, as well as the title of Quality Magazine's Quality Professional of the Year for 2012. Now, Harry's impact extends beyond the industry. He's been a key participant in high-level discussions including President Obama's 2012 insourcing forum at the White House and is a recognized voice in major publications and national media and with an impressive educational background, including a master's in engineering as well as an MBA, Harry combines academic excellence with real world experience and impact. So today, Harry continues to drive change through the Reshoring Initiative, focused on enhancing US competitiveness and strengthening the skilled workforce. So join us as we delve into his insights on reshaping American manufacturing and his vision for the future of the industry. Harry, welcome to Business Breaks. Dante, it's great to be here. Excellent introduction. I have to live up to that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you will. I mean, your, your CV speaks for itself. Sorry, your resume. <laughs> so to kick things off, Harry, can I ask you, what is reshoring and what are the current trends? Okay. So we actually track two trends. One is reshoring. The other is FDI, foreign direct investment. So reshoring is a, a U.S. headquartered company producing a product in the U.S. to fill a market segment that for a while had been filled from offshore. Now, they might it might have shut down a factory offshore. It might not. It, it might. It might be Company A producing something to take market share from Company B, which was importing it, still reshoring. Okay, but it's a U.S. headquartered company. Whereas FDI, foreign direct investment, that, that's very easy. A, a, any foreign headquartered company, think Siemens, Toyota, any Honda that that hires here, you know, builds a new factory, hires a bunch of people. Then that's foreign direct investment. That's that's very easy to track. So, but both of them really, both of those trends follow the same logic. In, in both cases, the company has decided that it would rather supply the U.S. with U.S. production rather than production somewhere significantly distant. We track both in-house, in other words, a, a GM factory, a, a Toyota factory, what have you, but also outsourced because the supply chain typically. Has more people in it, more jobs in it, more investment than the assembly plant. So if you look at an automotive assembly plant, it's sort of the top of a, a bill of materials pyramid, 
and and there's there might be a thousand, two thousand people at the assembly plant, but there's probably five or ten thousand people making the axles and the steel and the everything else that goes up into into that uh, that final assembly. So we track both, and and, and very important to, to note that it's that it's it's the, the domestic production replacing foreign production it doesn't have to be the same company. Doesn't have it doesn't even have to be the same product. I mean, I mean in theory you could say that if we'd done this 120 years ago, that when the car was introduced, it might have been replacing buggies that were being imported. <laughs> okay. to, to show you the trend in this, we pull up the first slide. Okay. So we were. I founded the organization in 2010. And in that year, we identified 6,000 jobs of reshoring plus FDI. Uh, and the, the trend did, did very nicely, getting up there into you know tens of tens of thousands, eventually a hundred thousand plus. Peaked in 2017 with the, the Trump tax and regulatory cuts, created a lot of business enthusiasm to, to to bring jobs back. Fell off with the trade wars. The companies didn't know what to do, didn't know what the rules were going to be, so they said let's let's wait and see what happens. And then picked up with COVID. And continued to rise since then with geopolitical uncertainty and, you know, other, other concerns. And so that it hit a, a new record last year, 2022 of 350,000. So this is, this isn't cumulative. This is a, each of these numbers is an annual event for the year. And the, so it's, it's done, it's gone from 6,000 to 350,000 a year in, in 12 or 13 years. We, we think it's done. It's done dramatically more than I thought it would do in this time period, and everybody else thought it would do less than I did. <laughs> wow! And it tells such an amazing story, really. And I'm sure there's nuances because it seems like that probably companies that were already based in the U.S. benefited from that increase in demand for products and services. And of course, that supply chain, and in many in many ways, like if you if you get a Say an automotive company, and they build a new assembly factory or GGM, something like that. Mm -hmm. And they have to be convinced that that doing it here instead of Mexico or instead of you know somewhere somewhere else in the world, that even with our higher wage rates, regulations, taxes, etc., that that they're going to make up for the higher wage costs in other ways: less inventory, quicker delivery, better engineering, manufacturing coordination, things like that. Whereas the supply chain companies, the people who make the steel and the castings and the machine parts and the plastic parts, for them, this is all new business. I mean, this is, I mean, they, they don't, they don't get GM and cetera holds them pretty tight, you know, but, but, <laughs> but, 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 but nevertheless, for them, they could get a 20, 30, 50% increase in volume by becoming the supplier to that new factory. So in many ways, the, the benefits are greater for the supply chain for the SMEs, small to medium-sized companies, than they are for the OEM. And so, the, and so, this, those small to medium-sized companies are very enthusiastic on how to participate. Whereas the OEMs, it's a challenge to get their attention and convince them to do it because they've got to decide. Let's say they're already assembling here and they're bringing in castings, and someone has to convince them to be willing to pay twenty, thirty percent more for the castings. But by convincing them that well, you won't have duty and you won't have freight and you won't mm -hmm. you won't have perhaps you know, Trump tariffs and, and and you'll 
confident you can get the delivery despite the port strikes and wars and you know whatever else might be happening. <laughs> so it takes a, a certain leap of faith for the OEM to make the decision, whereas the, the company that gets the order for those components for them is sure <laughs> delighted. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, and it's such an interesting business conundrum to face, especially for leaders who have to make those calls and balance the trade-offs. So I guess to that extent, what is the mission of the reshoring initiative? Yeah, it's very simple. It's to to balance the goods trade deficit. So the trade deficit is a, is the difference between how much we export and how much we import. And last year, 2022, we that deficit was $1.2 trillion dollars just just in goods 1.2 trillion and 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 that amounts to roughly 6 million manufacturing jobs so our trade deficit has caused us a deficit of about 6 million manufacturing jobs so if we when we overcome that you know when we achieve our mission the US manufacturing will be 40 40% larger than it is now 6 million more jobs assuming current levels of of productivity so it's a it's obviously a big challenge, a big, a big goal. Is it feasible? Would you say, Harry? Yeah, let's say it's it's feasible to make a lot of progress. Yeah. I guess everything depends on the time frame. If you said in next year, no, <laughs> you know, very easy. No. If you said in in the, in the next fifty years, and mm. why would you take fifty years? Because the trade deficit started around 1979, mm. so it's taken 45 years to get to where we've gotten to. And so it, it would be reasonable to expect it's going to take 30, 40, 50 years to, to, to recover, assuming we do a really good job of, of, of recovering. So another way of looking at it is, is that certainly it's going to take a lot of effort. It's going to, if we continue to do things exactly as we've done them, it will not happen. You know, just like, for example, if you ask me, can you run a six-minute mile? Could I even run a mile right now? If I said, can you run a six-minute mile? You'd say right now, no. Yeah. But I, I'd say if you trained hard, mm. like five days a week for uh, you know a year or two years, then you probably could run a six-minute mile. Mm. And just the same way the U.S. has to train hard, it has to it has to be do a much better job of of getting its students to go into apprenticeships to become toolmakers and welders and precision machinists, and not so many to become sociologists and anthropologists and history majors and so on. Okay? And to be more like the Germans in that in that sense. And 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 we would also say to get the dollar down. It's generally agreed the dollar is twenty to thirty percent overvalued because we're the reserve currency, and and that 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 automatically creates a huge price difference in our in our goods. And so, if we can get the dollar down by twenty or thirty percent, the that plus having a really good skilled workforce, higher productivity, enough capacity, et cetera. Then if if I could have those today, and then I'd say yes, in five years we can make it happen. So another another way of looking at this, a lot of economists would say that a developed nation should do services, software, technology, things like that, and let, let those low-wage countries do, do the manufacturing. But if you look at this map, the darker colors 
mm-hmm. have the highest percentages of their workforce in manufacturing. And if, if you can quite see into Europe, most of the European countries, which have wages similar to ours, are darker than we are. Mexico is darker than we are. Japan, South Korea, definitely are much higher uh, percentages in, like France is. We think of French as drinking wine and smoking mm-hmm. cigarettes or something. You know, but they've got a higher percentage of their people doing manufacturing than we do. So, so is it feasible? Yes, these other countries that are have similar economic structures as we do have proven that it's feasible. But it's going it's to take action, and it's going to take decades. I understand. Now, that's fascinating. And, yeah, it is a long-term game. But, yeah, it's good to think about how you can plan for it and ensure the futures of the next generation of workers because then no, no, it would pull, be good. To- yeah, pull up the next slide if you would. And 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 that's interesting. It's interesting that the line, see the line that's up there, the straight line that's up in the blue area is supposed to come all the way through down, and it didn't for some reason. But the, what I did, I I took the years from when China joined the WTO until China until we had the Great Recession, did a regression line through that. That's that straight line you can see starting up there, and if that if that continued at that pace, we would today have about 6 million fewer jobs than we actually do in manufacturing. So so our, our conclusion is that during that rapid decline in that previous 10, 15 years, the U.S. was offshoring rapidly, losing lots of jobs to these to China, Asia, various places, and, and reshoring almost nothing. And now we've reversed that. We're offshoring very little, and we're reshoring and FDIing a lot. And therefore, the red dots Show how manufacturing has continuously, not not a, not rapidly, but rather continuously increased number of manufacturing jobs in, in the for the last ten twelve years. And if you go back and look at at our you know hundred year history, it's almost never had that long a period of of gradual continuous increase. So so it's it's happening. Is it feasible? Well, it's happening, which is a good indication of feasibility. Yeah, and it it certainly shows a tells a story about being able to be self sufficient as well as a country because, as you mentioned, with geopolitical issues, rising fuel costs, fossil fuels that that obviously adds costs onto your supply chain as well as yep. the disruptions. So it's not just um, a business issue, but it's also an economic one on a international level. So I think that's that's fascinating. And I dare say you have a few interesting stories of examples of companies that have reversed the trend and contributed to that kind of uptick in jobs in the U.S. Do you have sure. any interesting stories? <laughs> of course. The way you, I guess the way you, you help people understand is to tell stories. Huh? And the, you know, the, the, the original, the, sort of the seminal story that came out maybe 12 years ago was GE Appliances in Louisville. Mm-hmm. And and they they had been having many of their appliances. The, the GE at Louisville factory, heavily unionized, you know, had declined and declined, number of employees coming down, not much investment, having many of their appliances made in China and imported. And then an article came out in, in The Atlantic, Unusual place for a manufacturing store, but ex- excellent article, probably the best I've ever seen. And 
Then this fellow went down, analyzed what had happened, and the at GE they said it makes sense to bring the work back, and 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 they took the appliances and they did something like DFMA, design for manufacturability and assembly. So they analyzed and found ways that maybe there were four pieces that were being, let's say, welded or screwed together. Instead, they made one piece, and so you had less labor to, you know, to put the thing together. And, 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 and did, they completely redesigned many of the products. And, and as a result, even with their higher wage rates here in the U.S., at the time, probably five times China, they were able to get the cost, the manufacturing down close enough that when they considered the duty and the freight and all that other stuff that was involved, it was a no-brainer to bring it back. And and about a year ago, the the current GE appliance CEO, and I think he may, may have been back then, I'm not sure, but he came out and said, you know, folks, all that work that went offshore, well, most of it didn't make any sense even at the time. If you'd done the math correctly, you would have kept the work here, and and we're we've brought it back, and we're going to keep bringing it back. So they're an excellent example. Big company, a big company, smaller companies. One that that won the National Metalworking Reshoring Award this year, which was announced at Fab Tech, big big trade show in McCormick Place, back in September, and the company was Hobson and Motzer, which is in Connecticut. The, Big company, you know, hundreds of employees, very precision machining, and they produced, they got an order for a medical device components. Something goes into the assembly of a medical device, and it required just, just the absolute extreme of metal forming, machining, assembly. It had to be perfect. And, and the head, I think it was being done by a Korean company and, and the Connecticut company, Hobson Mozart prove that they did a better job. And and one reason they're, they're that way, <coughs> they invest, I, I can't remember, I, I think 5 to 10% of their annual revenue into new equipment every year. So substantial investment in quality and productivity. And they have, I think, four or five different apprentice programs within the company. So they're getting the smartest high school kids and training them really well and giving them the best equipment. and. Uh-huh. and, and to do what you should do to win, and and yeah. they won't. So I'm very proud of them. Another interesting case, and in, happens to also be Connecticut. I, Connecticut or Massachusetts, I'm not sure which. New, New England Dye Company, Nedco, mm. and they're they're a customer of of one of our sponsors called United Grinding, makes fancy CNC grinding machines, and and Nedco had been producing a variety of carbide tools and objects um, manually and grinding them. Your skill had three people doing this very skilled work, also some EDM involved in it. And then they bought a, a Studer, part of United Grinding, a CNC machine. And and they, they found now that they could make the same pieces with 80% fewer man hours per piece. So all of a sudden, their costs were competitive with China or wherever else you could have gone. And their quality, where they occasionally human made a mistake before, they haven't had a piece, one piece of scrap since they put this machine in. See? And they found that it's good both for single volume, which is which is generally sort of tough to do on CNC, and, and also for high volume. And so they've had significant volumes of both. 
and something, I can't remember now, but something like 60 or 70% of their total annual revenue is product that's been reshored. So it really, really, it's not a big shop, but it's still a very dramatic, you know, story. And the guy who owns it runs the machine. <laughs> He's got other people there, but but he he makes sure it gets done right. So so three, I think three, you know, so, so a really big company, a sort of middle sized company, and then a small small company, all all very successful. That's amazing, and thank you for sharing those very inspiring examples. So it's clear that there's there's this incentive to reshore, and it seems to drive innovation in order to remain competitive, to offset the high labor cost by keeping work at home but why else do companies reach why do companies reshore but i broke break it down into two time periods from from say 2010 when we started analyzing until about 2019 so just before the the covid it was a broad range of costs and risks i I think of it as the death of a thousand cuts so there's an interesting story a, a professor john gray at the ohio state university business school he found he found four small to medium sized companies that had offshored and then reshored, and he he, he did a study case study on them like professors do, and said why why did you offshore? Well, the wages were so much lower and the prices were so much lower that I, I had to do it. It was, it was obvious. Huh? Well, then why'd you reshore? And they said, <laughs> over over a couple of year period, quality issues, travel, late night communications, late delivery. You know, lost orders because I didn't have the parts that I needed, too much inventory, whatever. And you put all that together, and 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 any one of those probably wouldn't have driven it. But the sum of all those irritations and problems was enough to convince us to bring it back. So that was 2010 to 2019. And then from 2020 to 2023, the it's, it's seeing bigger issues like COVID. You know, obviously, product maybe came over a month late or two months late with the you know, remember the boats outside of LA and all that, all those problems. So, so people got used to say they 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 experienced a, a month, one month, a two month delivery, and then we had Russia Ukraine, and now we've got the Middle East, and and hanging over it all is is uh, China Taiwan because China and that general area of the world is a major source of of so much of what we import. So, so it turns out that. A recent survey by Chief Executive Magazine asked companies, what motivates you to reshore? And the number one issue, they said, was geopolitical risk. So the risk that there will be decoupling or de-risking, which will prevent them for an extended period of time, three months, six months, a year, forever, from getting product from that other country. Okay, So we, a couple months ago, came out with a geopolitical risk map, which shows the probability of, of of that happening with any with any given country, I think there's seven countries and maybe eight continents or something like that on there. And the and we said the U.S. it's essentially zero. We said Russia is a hundred because you're not supposed to buy anything from Russia now. And and we tried to be very moderate with China and said three point five percent. We got the we got the data from a survey of geopoliticians about what's the probability of war over Taiwan. Okay? And so, so we, we spread this out for all these different countries. We're just in the process of updating it for the Middle East because as soon as we got it out, <laughs> they had another war over there. <laughs> and, and and so the idea is that, uh, like many of our listeners, if if they, if they've got something they're bringing in from offshore, whether you're a retailer or you're a manufacturer, 
especially if you're a manufacturer, you bring in components, and and especially if it's from one of these higher risk cut areas like the Middle East or especially China, you say to yourself, well, what's the probability that we're going to get cut off? Well, for China, we'd say 3.5% per year, so which means over 10 years, 35%. And, and then if that happens, how much business will I lose? If I don't have these components, how long is it going to take me to replace them, given that all my everybody else in the country will not have the components they need? They'll all be going to the same suppliers to get stuff, that, that and the suppliers are already busy. So it's going to be years till they get resupplied. So how much sales am I going to lose? How much margin am I going to lose times the probability of it happening? And compare that to the incremental cost of getting it here, or maybe Germany, but somewhere safe, or Canada, and, and, and compare those two numbers and be able to see which components make the sense to bring it back now. So what I always tell them, bring it back now, bring as much as you can justify back now Strengthen your local supply base here in the United States. So if this does happen, you can call them up and say, hey, Bill, you know, all the, all the work I've given you the last two years, I need a favor. <laughs> There's a war over there. <laughs> I need some more parts and I need a fast. Whereas if, if you haven't done that, if you get nothing mm. from anybody and you call them up and say, hey, I need, I need parts, they say, you know, you're the hundredth call I've had today after the war started. <laughs> I carry in about five years. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Anyway, so, so we, th we think there's a, a real role here. The other thing that's happening that's interesting is ESG, mm -hmm. environmental, social, and governance. And the environmental is e fairly easy to track. We have, we have a, a software called the TCO Estimator that companies can use to calculate all these other costs and risks that we're talking about, values of various kinds. And and in it, we have nine different product categories, steel, aluminum, aluminum die casting, apparel, paper. And, and the system calculates the environmental impact of making it in that other country and shipping it here versus making it here. And, and for, for example, relative to China, making it here instead of there and shipping it here cuts the emissions by 25 to 50%. So if, if a company say, what can we do to meet our environmental goals? Well, I could put, you know, I, I could put up the solar panels. Well, that's okay, put up solar panels. But you can save a lot more by sourcing your product here where it doesn't have to be shipped. And, and even more so where the electricity used in the production of the product is made primarily with sources other than coal, whereas in China, something like 70% of it's made with coal. And, mm -hmm. and therefore, every kilowatt hour difference means less emissions by making it here. So we believe that ESG is is very important. And in fact, a, a recent survey showed that companies are starting to recognize that reshoring is the single fastest way for them to reduce their environmental load. Amazing. And yeah, I can imagine not not having to move parts back and forth and <clears throat> even subcomponent parts because they could, as well as raw materials, it just improves everything. And that's that's a great story. I guess it sounds really great, but um, surely there are obviously challenges in, in implementing a reshoring strategy. What are the biggest considerations? If there weren't challenges, they wouldn't need me. Absolutely. So skilled workforce. 
Mm. Workforce in general, I mean, even low low skill, even is, is very hard to get, and and high skill is is especially hard to get, and, and takes can take years to train. So skilled workforce availability and skill level. So in if you, you take the U.S. too too often the worker falls into manufacturing and as a job and they get some training and they, they do okay. Okay. Whereas in say Germany or Switzerland or Austria, Japan, many of the smart, very smart kids in high school, very aggressive kids, go into manufacturing, go into a four-year apprenticeship program, get get exceptionally good training. And and so when when they come out, they're they're probably as good at the end of four years as our 20-year veteran is, or better, they're better, because they really have studied the basics. And so, so you get over there, you have more of them, and you, you get, on the average, smarter ones, on average, and, 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 we, and they train them a lot better, and we tend to just sort of make do. And, and so skilled workforce availability and skill level, as a result of all these of various things, our manufacturing cost is about 10 to 40% higher here like 10% higher than Germany and 40% higher than China, mm-hmm. India, and so on. And, and, and therefore, companies look at that and they say, wow, I get 40%. I, I get fired if I, if I don't go there. And, and so that's, that's a huge difference. It has to be overcome. And, and they tend, unfortunately, the companies tend to look just at that price difference with the FOB or free on board or X-Works price, the mm-hmm. factory price, the manufacturing cost. Rather than including the duty and the freight and the carrying cost of inventory and the risk of stocking out, and risk of war, you know all this kind of stuff, mm. and so, so, so that's hard. We did a survey with Plant Moran, one of the big consulting companies. Asked companies, manufacturers, and and distributors, why do you uh, offshore? Why don't you get it here? And they said, price. You're overwhelmingly. So price is the big thing. Our tax system isn't very good. We we cut the nominal tax rate, but we're but we, at, when we did that in 2017, we also had accelerated depreciation. You could write off capital investment in, in new productive equipment in in the year in which you installed it. Where now that's phasing out, and so by I think four years from now, we'll be back to depreciating in over seven years or something like that. And and that's that's not much of an incentive to to invest. U.S. companies tend to have a short-term perspective. They, they, the big companies want to make quarterly earnings. The smaller company wants enough money left to buy a new Cadillac <laughs> or Mercedes. <laughs> or yeah. and, and, and whereas the Europeans, even when things are slow, they buy equipment. They, they, they hire apprentices. They train them. They're continually investing. And, and, and we need to do a better, better job of that. So all those things influence us. So, so it's, it's not a slam dunk. It, it requires behavioral changes at the federal level and the state level, like training, getting the, getting the dollar down by 20 or 30 percent. There's methodologies like the market access charge to do that. Mm-hmm. And then just uh, longer term perspective by the companies. Yeah. And um, you mentioned quite rightly about the short term perspective. And even it sounds like when you're doing the cost analysis, you're you're basing it on incomplete information when you're not baking in the the freight shipping and related import taxes on that so it's 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 a fascinating challenge and obviously 
sounds like it's it's almost like you're doing a correction <laughs> after finding out it's not working or at least not working as well as you'd hoped for, for the um, country country it certainly hasn't worked well and yeah. for the for the companies they've survived many of them survived of course of course there's tens of thousands of small manufacturing companies that didn't survive because the big yeah. companies bought the stuff offshore instead of, instead of getting them here yeah and and obviously that that's a big factor when big companies move they tend to take the economic activity with them in terms of the related services as well as small pot suppliers i think yeah coming back to that strategic vision what are the potential long-term benefits of reshoring for the company's growth and sustainability. Are there any considerations that affect the decision for a lot of these businesses? Yeah, I'd say, why don't you pull up the the next slide, slide number five, yeah? So this is a very interesting slide. The lady who founded and runs ResiLink mm. developed this, and she says that companies have gone from the before to the after, and the before is the green and the after is the red. So that before, let's say up until a couple of years ago, companies were, when they decided where to get components, where to buy stuff, they, they said, how do I save pennies on that? Can I save a few more pennies by going somewhere else? Kind of thing, huh? And now, now they're concerned, the red, that they have the products so they can assemble their end product and ship it and make tens of thousands of dollars worth of profit on shipping the end product. Which they can't do, cannot do if they don't have the components to make it. So they've gone from worrying about pennies to protecting tens of thousands. Okay, <laughs> which which fits exactly into our our thought process. So this Resolink, they're, they're an expert on this subject, and, and I recommend them as a, as a source for for information. So that, that that's an important benefit for companies that if if you don't have the components, you can't you can't sell your product. <laughs> Lower inventory, like one company that, that I dealt with, Mori Corp, is a, mm. uh, a printed circuit board manufacturer outside Chicago. And they had been buying a an aluminum die casting from China. And it's something how they had a quality issue. I'm thinking it leaked. is a housing that the circuit boards went in and water and electricity don't do well together. And so they their customer was furious insisted they find a domestic source. They got a domestic source for the housing. Mm. And first, they solved the quality problem. That was most important. But second, a year later, when they went back and checked, their inventory of the component was down by 94%. And they they still had all they need. Why? Because instead of getting a mountain of the product once every quarter to fill a container, they got just what they need once a week from their local supplier. Instead of keeping extra there in case there was a quality issue, they didn't have to keep extra there. And so, so, and so we, we'd say a, a general thought would be 50, 50% reduction in inventory. And if you're, there's a lot of companies out there that have given up on just in time, JIT, mm-hmm. because, because you can't assure that you can have the product arriving in the time that you want. You know? and, and yeah, that's true if you're trying to get it from halfway across the world. But if you're getting it from somebody 10 or 50 or 100 miles away, such that if, if you're about to run out, they can get in the pickup truck and bring you 10 of them. You know, yeah. away, you know? that, 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 now you've got a solution. So, so if you want to keep doing just in time, local makes sense. Uh, the ability of engineering and manufacturing to optimize 
because they can speak the same language in the same time zone, actually physically get together, have a share of coffee, look at the problem, work it out. That's good. The I think companies, many companies have problems with workforce, obviously recruitment, retention, and so on. And one of the best things they can do is is show their commitment to the workforce and the community by first hiring and training and then retaining, you know, not, not shutting down and moving the work off to somewhere else, but showing the community that they're committed to the community and committed to the workforce by increasing the, the work here, bringing work back instead of shipping it off somewhere else. I mentioned ESG. So all these things are positive impacts for the company, but also for the community in the country. I can imagine it, it must do wonders for the brand to have made in USA products and services. That's generally true. The, the 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 only problem is, especially with consumer goods. In consumer goods is where it's probably more should have the biggest difference. Surveys say that I know seventy percent of people would rather buy made in U.S. and thirty or forty percent are willing to pay ten percent or more premium for it. But when you go to the store and you look for the made in USA, any using? Oh my god! Yeah. Okay. So if anybody out there is a retailer. And, and, and agrees with that thought. We have a, we have a plan on how to overcome that issue. So if anybody wants in, and if, if Dante gives you our, our contact information, I'd be delighted to have someone that wants to make that happen. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, um, I'll, I'll definitely include your uh, contact details in the show notes, Harry. This is a fascinating conversation. And just to kind of go back a couple of, couple of sentences and points. Yeah, that um, I've seen enough uh, supply chain managers saying we're moving from just in time to just in case. So, yeah, that's probably symptomatic of not having a localized supply chain. Exactly. Yeah. In fact, I, I was on a annual conference of AMA, Association for Manufacturing Excellence, which is the Lean Association. This is about two or three years ago. And someone said, is, is just-in-time history? Have companies, have companies gotten too lean And with just-in-time? I said, and everybody else said, yeah, yeah. Looks like. I said, no, no, no. The, the, the companies haven't gotten lean enough because if they'd been lean enough, they would have understood all the waste associated with offshoring and they would have had local sources and just in time would still be very easy to do. <laughs> yeah. And it's so much easier to control the quality if you're able to just hop on a car, drive a mile down to visit your supplier versus flying all the way across the world to actually see them. And the same with, shall we say, poor quality parts you know if you ship them all the way and like say five percent is is faulty you you end up just scrapping in location rather than sending them back and getting them fixed of course which is waste yeah. or, or or they go out and they're in the, and you have a warranty issue which is even worse yeah yeah it's like they just just on that subject i i talked to someone who's a like a salesman for a shop and he said harry i got a problem i'm I'm trying to convince this big company to buy from us. And I go in, I see the purchasing person and I say, Hey, why don't you buy from us? And the the purchasing person says, you'd have to match the Chinese price. And and the salesman says, I've heard that you're having warranty issues and you've got too much inventory and, and, or you don't have enough. And, and that's costing you all kinds of money. And, And can't we put that into the calculation, total cost of ownership? And the purchasing person says, those are not in my budget. Those are in somebody else's budget. I buy just based on price. 
That's, that's not a team player. So we, you have to some, find a way to get around them, get to the general manager, get to the other departments that are being import, impacted, and get them to convince the purchasing department to consider their needs as well as, as the needs of the purchasing department. That's a mic drop moment there, and it brings back a painful memory as an accountant. I now work as an IT project manager, but back in the day, we had shipping costs, and um, I spoke to a global director of purchasing about the same thing. We were losing a lot of money on uh, import duties on on subcomponents parts because of a, a legal technicality, which meant we couldn't reclaim our import taxes that were onward processed. And you know, when I tried to explain it to him as a kind of it was uh, it was all tied to tax legislation in that in that in that jurisdiction. And he just said, well, when you say the word taxes, I'm going to fall asleep. So you might as well get lost, you know. <laughs> so again, coming back to a flawed metric and and the wrong behavior is not thinking holistically because it's not on your, it's not in your performance targets. Yeah. 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 Brilliant. So I guess, what does the reshoring initiative do to accelerate reshoring? Let me think about it in four, four steps, so to speak. First, we document the trend. We're the only source of data on h- how much is being reshored, how many jobs, how much investment, from what countries, to, to what states, for what reasons, what industries, what products, all that kind of thing. We're, we're the go-to place for that. So we document. And one reason we document it is that the I have a survey someone else did that said company B is more likely to reshore if it sees that company A has done it. So by making it very visible, by people listening to your podcast, they'll be a little more likely to reshore than if they hadn't listened to the podcast. So that's why that's why I'm here. Yeah. We, we document, we promote. So we we do we write maybe two or three articles a month. We get quoted in you know, three or four or five interviews a month. We do sixty, seventy events like this a year, live, you know, in in the field or or remote. So we do everything we can to get to get. I I, I talk to people at parties. <laughs> you, know, you get her, get her to listen. We, we promote. We enable. We have the, the 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 TCO estimator. So if you pull up slide six, sure. Okay. So the the horizontal axis is the China FOB price as a percentage of the U.S. FOB price. So the vertical line is 100. So at 100, they're equal. To the left, China is cheaper. To the right, U.S. is cheaper. And this is 190 cases of people using our TCO estimator that had done that analysis. And you can see in the blue line, which is the price, the the peak is around 75%. And with the TCO line, which then includes duty and freight and carrying cost of inventory, but but not China risk, not, not none of those new big things. The, the red line shifts to the peaks around 85. And if there's a 15% Trump tariff, in, then it shifts to the yellow line, so the peaks around 100. And so if you look in the lower left-hand corner, you can see the area under the curve for the blue line to the right of the horizontal, of the vertical line. So 8% of the cases based on price, the U.S. wins, based on total cost, 32%, and total cost with a tariff, 46%. So just by getting the companies to do the math correctly, you can go from, you can add 20 or 30% of what's being imported to the 
to the logical to make in the United States category, just in the interest of the company, not considering the interest of the country and, and your fellow citizens and your neighbors, et cetera, et cetera. So TCO, very important. We have a new version coming out that will include ESG, so the emissions impact, et cetera. We'll include the Section 301 tariff, like I show here, and we'll include the geopolitical risk. So we made that map so that people could use it when they're doing the analysis and have numbers to input into the equation to figure out what that prospective loss is or expected value loss is, something like decoupling. So we we also have a program where a, a company can put up a, a product of some kind, something they make and they're really good at, and we can tell them who the biggest importers of those products are and then train them to use our TCO estimator to convince the importer to buy from the manufacturer instead. So, so to so import substitution, we're about to come out with a, a, a website, page on our website that lists all, all or most of the federal grant opportunities, all these things that came out with the CHIPS Act and the IRA, et cetera. So depending on what industry you're in and whether you're, whether you're like an OEM or a supplier and et cetera, et cetera, It'll, it'll target you at which a whom a whom to call in Washington to ask for money. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm not guaranteeing that anybody in particular will get it, but at least if you if you if you think that maybe you deserve it because what you're doing is green or it helps some of these key programs, this will help you be efficient about finding the, the best solutions for that. So we document, we promote, we enable, and then we advocate. So we're continually trying to get the government to. Spend more on, or emphasize more on apprentice programs to reduce the dollar, to have the, the corporate tax rates more efficient in terms of investment and so on. So to put all those things together, that, that's that's what we do. I have to, I have a confession to make, and this is why this uh, this show is so relevant. I'm based in the UK, but ninety five percent of my podcast audience are in the USA. So this is really interesting. What would if if a business owner in America was listening to this, how would they be able to gain access to this sort of service and guidance? Well, most of most of the kind of data and the things I'm describing are on our website at at uh, reshorenow.org. Mm. Okay, Re, where the reshoring initiative, but the website is reshorenow.org, and you can go there and you can find charts like this and. And, and mentions of the various programs that we provide. This TCO estimator is free there to use online. Have to sign up, sign in, use it. Yeah. And, and if they want to, they can email me. It's harry.moser, M-O-S-E-R, at reshorenow.org. So if you've got a question, first, if you have a, if you need help deciding to reshore, love to help you. If you've succeeded in reshoring, then you know, tell us what it is, and we can add it to our database of the of the reshoring. And maybe if it's if it's metallic, then you could you could apply for the National Metalworking Reshoring Award, and I can give you the, the prize in September of 2024 at IMTS, the hundred thousand plus person machine tool show. Interesting. Thank you. And. Do you come across any, when you're executing this reshoring strategy, I take it like in terms of feasibility, you must encounter unique challenges to different types of business. 
and one 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 thing I had in mind is, say for example, you have a key supplier, and for whatever reason they're not willing to relocate to the U.S. Do you end up having to redesign your supply chain in order to <clears throat> maintain maintain your operations? Is that something that comes up as a challenge? There, there certainly are some products in which the U.S. is not self-sufficient, like like rare earth minerals, like, like you know solar cells, like uh, <coughs> EV batteries, you know, and, you know the, the the most uh, sophisticated chips, all these kinds of things. The U.S. was has been relatively uh, out of. You know, we weren't making it anymore, or, or making just maybe experimental quantities, not not production. So now the government's done a lot with the chips and the EV batteries. It's amazing what hundreds of billions of dollars will get you. <laughs> and, and, and but there, but there's still other certainly other categories we're not. And then you either have to convince the supplier to come over here and build a factory, or or you have to find someone who makes something similar. And convince them. You say, "Hey, I need five million dollars a year worth of these things. How about like like one thing we've we've tried? Haven't have not succeeded yet. I've had a, three three or four companies come to me and say they need big castings, iron castings, thousand pounds each, bases for machines. And they all say they've gone to all the foundries, and the foundries say they're either too busy or for for you know for a million or two million dollars a year, they're not willing to to expand. Okay, and so what I think, what I'd like to do, and haven't had time, is to gather five of those companies together so they've got $10 million a year worth of business, and then go to the foundry and say, okay, who wants $10 million a year worth of business? And these companies are willing to put up a guarantee, you know, annual minimum quantity, something like that, so that the foundry can go ahead and spend $20 million or whatever to build the, the, the capacity to make the castings so the work can come back. It doesn't... <laughs> So there's, you know, if you just sit here and wait for it to happen, it's not going to happen. Somebody's got to go out and and do the hard work of putting the pieces together to to, to make the puzzle and, and make it happen. Interesting, and yeah, and I guess there's the business challenge, but there's also government who have a vested interest in ensuring that the economy is resilient. What do you think the government should do to accelerate reshoring? Yeah. As, as I, I've mentioned all along, we massively shift resources from college degrees to apprenticeships. So, mm-hmm. I, and I don't mean fewer engineers. I mean fewer anthropologists, sociologists, you know, the kind mm-hmm. of people, fewer people winding up working at Starbucks to pay off their university degree. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so that, that's number one, because you need it both for, you need millions of people to have the capacity and you need better productivity by having better trained people. Reduce the dollar by twenty or thirty percent. Fix the tax system, like I talked about, with the depreciation rate. Maybe a value-added tax. There's pluses and minuses to it, but almost all the other countries have a value-added tax. Maybe fifteen percent tax on imports and a fifteen percent credit on exports. And we don't do either, so we're, you know, falling behind on that competitiveness feature. So those are the and and then there's a list of a dozen other things. But I believe, like some people would say. Investment or innovation, and, and and those are necessary. But I believe companies will only invest here if they believe that they'll get a good return on their investment here. And, and until you have the workforce and and you get the 
the currency to, to, to the proper level so that you will be profitable. Here, people aren't going to invest enough to make a big difference. Okay? So I, I think you have to, we say the government should be setting, the, they should be leveling the playing field so, the comp- so then, then, then allow the market to make the decisions of what will be made here. But right now, you know, the, the price difference is so much that, that it's very hard to justify most things coming back. Whereas if you get that difference down to here, now, now uh, an investment in really good equipment and people and so on can get the U.S. cost down to here and still get a good return on the investment. That's interesting. And yeah, a lot of those incentives are actually financial in nature, but I'm sure there's other ways to actually encourage companies to reshore either through regulations, in enhancing standards as well to ensure that companies or countries that are just competing on price are actually having a basis for a comparison. And then if they have to increase the quality, then they have to price it into their service or else it's just, you know, dumping cheap goods that could be substandard. I mean, I'm not saying that that's necessarily the case, but I guess having transparency around, you know, there's there's value and then there's cost. And the cost is always seems to be one side of the equation that's not always even fully understood, even though in theory, as a business person, that should be the easiest thing to quantify. So I guess um, uh, coming back to a point of yours about um, environment and ESG. So what sort of environmental and safety standards would you find need to be adhered to? And how would a company prepare for that as they prepare to onshore or reshore previously offshored operations? <laughs> well, one thing that, that relates to that, there's a lot of discussion about plans for tariffs that would be based on the environmental load of the product that's being imported. So if if the if the casting made in the other country, if making it produces more emissions than making it here, then you'd charge them an extra tariff to make up for that so as to so as to encourage the work to be done in the lower emissions place. And, and the US isn't always the lower emissions. For example, uh, Canada has is close, you know, close as most states and 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 most of their electricity is hydro, and therefore their emissions per kilowatt hour are lower than ours. So you might, might, might want to move some work from the U.S. to Canada. That's that's okay. But overall, you'll move a lot, much more work from China to the U.S. than you will from the U.S. to Canada. So so, <clears throat> so many conservatives resist the ESG movement, and yet I think it's. And yet they won't work to come to the U.S. And one of the best ways to do it is to make sure that government and companies take uh, are cognizant of and, and adjust for the ESG considerations. That's, that's fascinating. Thank you. And um, you mentioned TCO and I think that's 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 part of the equation. If you can price in the environmental considerations and factors, then it becomes more of a holistic decision rather than just saying, "Well, we've got this limited scope of cost which we can quantify," and on that basis, it makes sense to stay offshore. But really, when you think about the whole impact, and as you mentioned, 
haven't even covered what are the benefits of having locations with full employment. That's um, that's that's kind of that that is really fascinating. So our revised uh, T, revised TCO estimator, which I'm supposed to be working on, will will quantify those environmental differences. Will quantify the value of a job brought to the United States, and then give the company the chance to say, "Yeah, I care." I care. I, that should go into our value, or, or they can say I don't care. But, but at least it, it challenges them to to make the responsible decision. Absolutely. Thank you, Harry. And um, in terms of the skills gap, do you do you see that reshoring might increase that concern in the U.S. where there's potentially a skills shortage for certain? skilled labor in, in in the economy? Well, there already are shortages, clearly. And I mean, all, all the old people like like my age, they ought to be working instead of sitting on the beach. And then we right. wouldn't have a problem. <laughs> but but the uh, it, it cuts two ways. As, as we bring jobs back, that's more demand. And if the supply doesn't go up, then there's more shortage. So that's, that's clear. On the other hand, if you if you look at why students haven't cho- have not chosen to go into manufacturing, one of the reasons was the belief that manufacturing is disappearing in the United States, that all the work's being offshored to China, India, Mexico, somewhere else. So why would I want to become an apprentice, spend four years learning something, and then not be able to get a job when I come out of the yeah. apprentice? Right. So so to the extent that that the society sees that. Manufacturing coming back is not just a possibility, but that it's a reality. Yeah. So, the, so the worker can say, "Yeah, I'm going to get." So the, like the guidance counselor can say, "Susie, yeah, you want to become a welder? Become a welder. That's a great career. Make hundred thousand dollars a year with overtime." In fact, someone keeps telling me that that the underwater welders get one hundred fifty to two hundred thousand dollars a year. <laughs> I can well believe that, and you know, it's it's like the skilled manual labor. That's going to be something that wouldn't necessarily be replaced through automation. And with the advent of AI being what it is, you can see a lot of white collar jobs disappearing even now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the AI, I think, works better on information than it does on things. Yeah. So you're, exactly. you're probably more protected if you're really, if you're a welder or you're something else. Because I, I, yeah, there's just going to be a. Well, even in the recessions, the people are still looking for welders. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my plumber he 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 comes to me for advice on how to how to update his website. So it's it's just nuts. But I think you'd be making more if you just paid someone to to do your website for you. But <laughs> I think for him, it's similar to me. It's a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I think um, it's interesting what AI can do these days. Just to off on a an adjacent tangent but yeah thank you harry i guess uh to wrap up what are your views on the future of reshoring it looks like 2023 will be flat with 2022 definitely the surge is not continuing and and we believe that's because the the government's running out of hundreds of billions of dollars to give away and the and the de- deficit and debt have gotten so big that they can't keep piling more on. I think that the comp- the big companies 
<clears throat> have big projects going already, and they can't find cannot find enough construction workers and then enough factory workers. So they, you know, they're I think they're, they got enough to digest, like the, the pythons that just swallowed the pig. You know, you have to, to digest for a while, and and there is a shortage, you know. So so I, I I'll be delighted if things will just sort of close along at. 300,000 or so jobs a year being brought back. <clears throat> and then, because I, 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 I hear all the time from people who say, Harry, I've been told by management to bring your work back or, or, or to evaluate what to bring back. And so I know there's tens of thousands of companies that are planning it. All the surveys say that 80 or 90% of companies are planning to do it. So it's just time for them to, to get that in gear. The government can help if it will work on the workforce issues and get the dollar down. And then it'll be more obvious. They won't need me to sharpen the pencil to convince them to do it. it, 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 it we should get it to the point where it's obvious. Mm-hmm. And I guess uh, the key to that acceleration is um, lower U.S. dollar? Lower U.S. dollar and more skilled workforce. Brilliant. So, Harry, that interview flew by. <laughs> Thank you so much for a fascinating conversation. Just one final question. If any of our listeners want to connect with you, what's, where's the best place online to do that? The, the website is reshorenow.org, O-R-G, and I'm at harry.moser at reshorenow.org. And you can email me. You can drop, leave a note on the website. You can do whatever, and I'd love to hear about your reshoring successes and help you have more reshoring successes in the future. So. We're here for you. <laughs> Brilliant. And yeah, listeners, if you're interested in reshoring, I will drop Harry's details in the show notes. Harry, thank you for an amazing conversation. It's been a pleasure. Bye, Dante. Thank you. Bye. Business Breaks, all things business podcast with Dante Haley and John Byrne.